I'm Phil Sanson. I'm Bruce Miller. It's episode two. You're listening to Apex. Apex, a show for CAMFM asking the question, what makes us human? This is episode two. If you listened to episode one, thanks for sticking with it. We'll try not to disappoint you. If you haven't, that's fine. You don't need to. But if you want to, it's available online at mixcloud.com slash apex underscore the show. It aired a couple weeks ago, and we talked about the mysterious case of the whistling and talking orangutans, and possibly declared that language makes us human. Well, today we're still on language, not not the world's biggest shakeup, I know, but it's going to be slightly different. It's going to involve some great characters, as well as one massive movie franchise, and it's going to lead somewhere you don't expect. You ready? Very intriguing. It's it's exciting premise, right? I'm super excited. We're going to be experts in language by the end of this. Oh boy. I should also mention that this isn't the first time we've recorded this. Phil did. Mug me over, essentially. Nah. I like to I like to blame the technology, but <laughs> we did. We spent about three hours in the studio recording this episode, right? Yep. And then I on got my lunch break on Bruce's in Bruce's free time, and I got home and I plugged the memory stick into my computer. No file, no recording. Disaster. I had a little cry. Yeah. I'll be brutally honest. My mum cried about it. To be honest with you, Phil. Is that true? So it's not true, no. Oh, okay, I just thought she was really invested. <laughs> so if you hear Bruce saying something sounds familiar, that's going to be why. Indeed, that's our excuses in early. Yeah, yeah, there we go. We phoned it in. <laughs> <laughs> the language you heard at the start of the episode, that was Esperanto. Have you heard of that one? Uh, I have, yeah. <laughs> Is that because we've already done this? Well, okay, so casting my mind back, I had sort of heard the name previously, um, but I wasn't entirely sure uh, what it actually was. Yeah, but you definitely heard of it, right? Yeah. Okay, so Esperanto is this language, and the thing is that it's a big one. It's spoken by up to 2 million people around the world in more than 100 countries, but it's not native to any country in the world. And the people who speak it aren't from any specific place or ethnic background. And that's because it's what's called a constructed language. In the 1880s, his name was L.L. Zamenhof. He was actually not a language guy. He was an ophthalmologist. <laughs> right. Just just a random dude. Uh-huh. Who created the language entirely from scratch. Oh, wow. Yeah, and not just the words, but like the sounds in it and the way the grammar works and everything. But he did base a lot of the words on European languages, lots of different ones. Because the reason he decided to make it was to create a language to unite the world that everyone could speak. And so when he was designing it, he tried to make it as easy as possible for as many people as possible to learn. This might be the language for me. And he sort of succeeded, or at least did pretty well. Like I said, almost 2 million people who know Esperanto to various degrees. 
It's in the education system of a couple of countries, Turkey is one, and the Chinese government uses it for its daily news website. And I thought, given that most languages presumably take hundreds of years to come about to, to like naturally arise, I thought that for this thing created by a single guy, that's pretty good. Yeah, hats off to him. And for comparison, I now want to introduce you to Christoph. Well, so uh, my name is Christoph Gonsia Kovuts. It's, it's a long time ago. I mean, I was uh, 13, 14 years old. I'm now 40. I thought I could do better. Yep. He thought he could do better age 13. At the age of 13, wow. Bold kid. <laughs> that is an ego. Okay. Yeah. Well, we shall see, Christoph. Why, why did he get interested in that? Oh, why mostly boredom? <laughs> I was always fascinated by language, reading a language grammar. Uh, it's, it's something I, I love to do with people looking at me as if I'm a bit of a weird person. I was on holidays uh, reading something on my ebook, uh, and uh, uh, a friend was passing by. I was, uh, I was reading at the uh, swimming pool, and small, a small place, everybody knows each other. And, uh, and she asked me, what are you reading about? And, uh, what are you reading? And I said, I'm reading the grammar of Albanian. And then the conversation is kind of over. <laughs> it's a difficult way to make friends, isn't it, really? <laughs> For Christoph, that was the start of a long, long journey. And today, he's an active conlanger. That means a language constructor, someone who creates their own languages. And how many have you created? Oh, so, so many. I probably have at least 25 sketches lying around. But if you're talking about languages that have really stood the, the test of time and that I'm, uh, the ones that I'm still working on, that's only two. Yeah, these people create multiple languages. Whoa. Okay, I feel wholly inadequate in this guy's presence. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. It sounds like you've forgotten more languages than I'll ever know, which is fun. <laughs> it's not as if I, I could speak those languages. Which he doesn't have to do to be able to create one. He just has to be able to create the rules and the words, not necessarily memorize them. And apparently, according to him, once you realize just how much freedom you have when you're doing something like this, it can really, really take off for you. I started like that, but as, as I learned more about languages, I started moving away from Latin. As, as I got more interested in languages, I started even moving away from that uh, idea of international communication, which actually didn't interest me that much. It was just to have an excuse to create languages. Well, that's not the only excuse he has. Uh, I'm here as the president of the Language Creation Society. And uh, uh, what it is, it's an organization which uh, um, uh, promotes the art and craft of language creation. How can the... What? There's a whole society. This sounds... It's such a niche hobby. Yeah, exactly. And, and there is... It's the, him and his brother. <laughs> it's slightly bigger than that. Okay. But not that big. How big are we talking? The Language Creation Society itself is not a very big. We are about uh, 140 in 25 countries. Yeah, not that many. But just because the society is small, 
I want to emphasize doesn't doesn't mean the hobby is. We're not even uh, a percent of the uh, of the language uh, com uh, creation community, and we don't even try to be. We don't want to uh, 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 to take over the language creation community. We're just an organization who wants to support it. And it's only been around since 2007. Well, it's it's actually an outgrowth of the of the Conlang main mailing list, which is a, a mailing list that has existed since. 1991, to tell you that's a, a long time ago. Then one of the members, who's called Sai, that's his full name, Sai, he's a mononymic, had the idea of, of trying to do a conference, first language creation conference. He actually did that in 2006 and then discovered that it would be much easier to do it again if there was an, uh, a non-profit organization. And so the LCS was born. It was originally a society just dedicated to organizing the annual conference. But as it grew, it started to support the community in a bunch of other ways too. It gives out legal advice. It's a question of the legality of constructed languages. It's got a library. An actual library of actual books. Like Christoph said, it's designed to support people. Our role is to support the, the language creation community as a whole. We want to help everyone, not just our members. also do other things for people outside of the language creation community like we have um, what we call the uh, a jobs board where people who actually want to have somebody create a language for them for whatever reason they can come to us we'll uh, set up a job listing okay sidebar now's the time to mention that there are actually two types of constructed languages in the community they call them auxiliary languages and artistic languages Auxiliary languages are ones like Esperanto, and these are actually designed to, to help people communicate. So they're sort of, you could say, designed for speaking. Artistic languages, on the other hand, they're languages that people create just for artistic reasons. Like, there's this language, for example, called Tokipona, and this language only has 120 words, and it's designed as this sort of pure, zen-like language to help people simplify their thoughts. That's nice, I like that. It's, it's meant to be really nice. Uh -huh. You can't communicate it in it at all, like tea and coffee, they're the same word, they're just hot drink. Okay. Oh, that could, yeah, that could lead to some comic problems, couldn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, there's only like three words for colours. <laughs> okay, need some work. Yeah, well... No, that's the point. No, I get you're, it. I missing, get it. you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Um, well, if you do want to find out more, uh, there's a podcast called The Illusionist, beginning with an A. They've got a really good episode on Tokipana. Look them up. Another type of artistic language might be for entertainment. Like a movie or a TV show will want their fictional world to have its own fictional language. Like, for example, the movie Avatar. I think most people have seen that. They've got the language Navi. And that was constructed just for the film. So, this is what the LCS Jobs Board is for. People, or companies, who want to commission their own language. It's now, now a good time to say that I've actually got my own language. Oh yeah? I, don't know, I think I mentioned at one point to you, Phil, that me and my uh, 
cousin when we were about four we constructed our own language oh is that true yeah no it is it is uh it was it was you're, mainly you're... sort of dribbling and grunting but apparently no one else could understand us and we were having a whale of the time so and, and you guys had this had a complex communication yeah yeah no on. we were like best buddies with it oh sure it was just like this in, in joke that no one else could get involved with it was great <laughs> but my point is that if any you know big movie studios want to get in touch <laughs> let me know because can you give us the taste <laughs> no it's secret like i explained <laughs> Your your own sort of cousin language aside, mm-hmm. one of the commissions that the LCS Jobs Board is responsible for is one that you might have heard of. We are responsible for Dothraki. Keeping us in my usual foyer. Yeah, from the TV series Game of Thrones. I haven't heard of it, no. Oh, you don't watch Game of Thrones? No, that's, sorry. Uh, that, that's fair. That's I haven't fair. jumped on that bandwagon. Basically, that's our big, our big thing. HBO... Uh, contacted the Language Creation Society when they were just uh, uh, started saying that they had uh, a job, they wanted a Conlanger to create. At the time we didn't know, I was outside so I only uh, saw it from outside but it was uh, there was a lot of secrecy around it. But they wanted a Conlanger to create a language for an upcoming series which was expected to be become big. So at that time, what the Language Creation Society did was hold a competition. And uh, in the end, uh, HBO decided on the one person, and that's David Peterson. Obviously, David Peterson did very well out of the deal. But that was the commission that led them to actually making the job sport. And the reason for that was that the whole way it was handled at the time to them, seem really unfair. It's just that we were not very happy afterwards with the way it had gone, with the fact that one person won and the rest ended up with work they've done that because of the non-disclosure agreement, they would never be able to, to use even for themselves. It, it, it felt at the time, it felt that the right way to do it, but uh, looking back, and you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. It felt like a lot of work for for small results and with a lot of uh, well un- unfairness at the end for the people who didn't make it through, who had a, spent a lot of time and did a lot of work that they would never be able to use. Back to the Language Creation Society. Part of the reason the LCS makes up such a small fraction of the wider conlang community is that there's this big generation gap within it. This is really, really interesting. People of my generation, and I, I'm going to sound old, but uh, basically people who were in the language creation community before, well, basically before movies like Avatar, Lord of the Rings, and, and the Game of Thrones came out. Before that, we were kind of, well, an introvert community for the simple reason that most of us, when we tried to discuss about what we were doing, outside of our community, only received either uh, blank stares, and that was the most positive that you could get. Many people actually got uh, insults or uh, got bullied because of it, or or even got uh, advice to go to a psychiatrist, because that was not normal, what they were doing. There was something wrong with their heads. I feel quite bad. I did initially judge them. Yeah. Okay. okay, so this is quite a persecuted group. Oh, that's sad because they're just pursuing their dreams as well. Yeah, don't you feel bad? Yeah, I do a bit. Sorry. It. I mean, the fact that it's a niche, a minority, means that people struggle to understand it, but that's not good. I can see why they sort of retreated into their mailing list. <laughs> yeah. 
the older uh, language creators have always been more uh, private in when they were, what they were doing because of that resistance that they felt when trying to talk about what they were doing to other people. Today, we, we're starting to see the emergence of a generation of language creators that is much more open about what they're doing because they can say, hey, what I'm doing is what this guy, this David Peterson is getting paid for. I mean, in the 90s, it was still not like that. When you were a Star Trek fan, you were a nerd, and a nerd was a negative thing. Now, being a nerd is nearly, uh, or being a geek is, uh, is, is something to be proud of. Would you describe yourself as a as a nerd? No, I'm fatty. I'm more of a jock, to be honest. That's not true. <laughs> so there's been a big change in society that makes it much easier for language creators to be more open about what they are doing. But it's but the older ones are still still have this uh, in, in in the back of their mind how they were received in their time, and that that stays the the the, the scar stays, and they are uh, and they are will have difficulties to uh, to share their work. So yeah, the older generation is much more private about what they're doing and they will only share with fellow con- uh, language creators. The new generation is much more open about it. That's a very positive outlook. I don't know if it's true. You, I'm sure you've heard of stuff like, did you hear about the avatar language? That's true, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't immediately think, oh God, nerds. Yeah, it's a surprisingly big issue for them. And according to Christoph, it's really frustrating because he and his friends keep seeing the younger generation starting off, creating their languages, and getting things wrong in the same way that the older ones did when they first started. All language creators started making the same mistakes, which are basically unconsciously copying things from the languages they already speak without realizing that it's a feature of their language and not uh, a universal feature of human thoughts. And so they end up with languages that look on the surface different, but if you look uh, uh, deeper, it's actually just disguised English or disguised Spanish. Of, uh, uh, and it can be very well disguised, but it's still just a disguise on a language that already exists. And that's, that's a shame. So to pretty much no one's surprise, it's really tricky to create a new language, but not impossible. As we found out when I was a toddler, I don't want to. I don't want to deny the fact that that was like a real language. But do you mind? Do you mind if I take you to the next level? Sure. Yeah, it can definitely be advanced. Cool. I'm. I'm glad you're willing to admit that. Uh huh. Bruce, with your permission, I'd like to take you through how to create your own language. Nice. Okay. Here we go. Step one. Step one. Okay. So the first thing you got to think about is what kind of sounds and letters you want to have. And you might think, okay, I just want the normal letters of the alphabet. But, but, there is a lot of sounds out there in the world that the English language doesn't even include. Sounds like ch and ny and j that you could totally put in your language. There's a reason they're not included. Well, they're, they sound awful. <laughs> you could totally put them into your language, though. Uh-huh. It depends on how phlegmy you want it to sound. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and you can already see how it must help to know lots of languages already, right? Yeah. Yeah, or at least I only know one, so more than that. Uh Uh-huh. But I would say don't give up. Thank you. I can tell you're getting demoralized. Uh, I'll try and pick myself up. Okay, okay, you can do this, Bruce. Do some research. See what new sounds you might want to put in. And after that... Step two. 
Once you've got down the sounds you want to work, the next step is the structure, aka the grammar. <laughs> Grammar's never fun. Can we skip this one? What? Just have the sounds and then words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I get. Okay, grammar's important. Fine. Yeah, sorry, Bruce. Ah. So the basic structure is what I work on first, and when I start moving away from the very basics of how the words work together, how they combine to form sentences, then I start working, thinking of what is the culture behind it, and that leads us neatly into. Step 3 Here's where you start to think about who are the people who are speaking this language you're making. There must be a culture behind it, so I need to have at least the basis, the basics of a culture in order to be able to, uh, to create a language which is believable as a, as a, uh, at least as a human language. Even for someone like me who is not that interested in world building, as we call it, you you just have to do it otherwise you you just can't go on you can't can't work further you're, you're, you're blocked you can't create words without knowing who the people are who speak that language and that's because once you have to start trying to plan words and ideas you realize how much of an effect culture has on language everything in language is based on metaphor and I'm not talking about just uh, poetry, but everything. Basically, ba basically, the fact that in English, the past is in front of you, before, and the future goes after. Yeah, hang on. <laughs> Could you explain that? Yeah, th that's weird. I can try. I sort of struggle to understand too. But like, before you, as a phrase, means like literally before, like in front of you. Uh-huh. But... Obviously, it also means something in the past. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I think the idea is that it started off just meaning in front. Yeah. And then we sort of like co-opted it to mean... Oh, how confusing. Yeah, I know, right? Gee. So wow. there is the, the arrow of time is metaphorically an arrow from uh, in, in, in space. And that's true in every language. Uh, and it can be all the kind of metaphors. It can be time is a river... A conversation is war. You attack your adversaries with arguments. Once you start to notice these little quirks, which really, really isn't easy to do, you realize how many of them there are. Like what he was saying with time, you can be running out of time. But that doesn't totally make sense, does it? It's just us, metaphorically, describing time as a resource we have. So one of the things you need to pay attention and why you need to think of the culture of the of the people is that the the language always keeps the traces of the past of the of the people who speak it and the good language is when you've thought about about those things and you you haven't just mindlessly copied the metaphors of your of the languages you already speak because you haven't thought about it and that's actually the most difficult part of creating a language is that all these things, all these prejudice, all these things that are uh, that are internalized, all those metaphors, which are actually not uh, uh, mandatory, but just happen to be how your language do it. You you need to to recognize them in order not to simply copy them. You're allowed to copy them, but if you've thought about them and 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 decided that they fit the language you're creating, but just copying them because you haven't even realized that they were there, that's 
bad. It's not bad, but that's thoughtless language creation, basically. Cre uh, creating a good language means thinking about all these metaphors and what, uh, what they mean for the words of language, for the rules, because that, goes, uh, that can go very deep. It's really rethinking really about it, and to, to do that, you need to think about the culture of language. That's where culture and language really meet each other in, in these metaphors. So it must take an age to sculpt a language properly, mustn't it? Yeah. Think about all those metaphors. Wow. I can't even picture it. No. Just even that single one about before you, meaning in front of you, yeah, yeah. wrinkled my brain. Yeah. But in is that, in a weird way, that's kind of, they, they're the sort of thing that do emerge over millions. Like you were saying, a language constructs itself over millions of years. Yeah. So you yeah, get and those then, and little then you have... funny little quirks to a language, but that's due to like weird smacking together of different nations and all sorts yeah and then you have to sort of come up with that yeah. as, as a single person yeah on your straight own. away oh weird it's crazy really tricky wow every, every time i hear something i get more impressed with these guys mm, yeah definitely these guys yeah then once you have the culture and all of the metaphorical context it brings with it step four you just need some words Oh yeah, that's that's a simple step. Just words, yes. no biggie. And this is the part of language creating that never really ends, because there are millions of words in English. So millions of words you could put into your new language. You just have to go through the slog of making them all. It was uh, creating words was is is well to put it uh, uh, I find boring, because you do nothing else but add words to a list. And I'm more interested in uh, structures, in uh, uh, grammatical rules. Usually, the benchmark for being able to have a decent conversation in a language is about 5,000 words. Once you've reached that... Congratulations, you have your... Do you want to call it Millerese? I do not, no. Oh. What do I, you want? I have no better alternative, but that is an awful name. It's going to be more... Mm. Now, after all of that, if you've done well, you've made something that looks like a human language and also sounds like it could be a human language. You can't make a, a distinction just by looking at a description of a language, whether it will be natural or constructed. Just, uh, especially if, uh, if you take uh, um, a 300-page uh, grammar of, um, of Ainu, for instance, a language in, uh, in Japan, and a 300-page grammar of uh, uh, Teonath, which is a uh, constructed language, uh, I think maybe a very good linguist could figure out that Teonath is a constructed language, but if the grammar is written as if it's an existing language, I think most people wouldn't be able to make the difference. That's what the difference is between a bad and a good constructed language. A bad constructed language is a language that uh, falls basically under its own weight, that has rules that contradict themselves, that such thing. A good language doesn't even need to be that different from, a, uh, from an existing language. There's actually nothing wrong to trying to make a language that is based on an existing language, as long as there's some work on it, of course. It's not that you just take the words of uh, English and change all the words, then uh, you haven't created language, you just have created the most obnoxious way of speaking English. That's a, a fair point. Creating a language requires a skill set which is kind of like that of an architect. It, it needs to be, well, beautiful 
But also you have to think about the fact that the language is a system or even a system of st a structure of structures and substructures and many structures and everything needs to fit together well, otherwise it's going to fall apart. It's like uh, 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 designing uh, a building. If you don't pay attention to the basic rules of, of architecture, you're going to build it and it's going to fall. <laughs> it's, going to, it's not going to be able to ha handle its own weight. That's the same with, uh, with the language. So, after all that, how hard do you think it sounds, man? That sounds absolutely impossible. That's <laughs> literally what I thought. Yeah. Hats I've, off to all these people. I had it broke, I broke it down into simple steps. Mm -hmm. And it still sounds yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, each step is a mammoth task, isn't it? Oh, well, making the grammar. Yeah. The metaphors. They impress me so much. These guys, like, they're just on a higher plane of, like, of languages. Like, there's people who can speak loads of languages. Yeah. And that's impressive. And these people just make loads. Yeah. Which seems to me just another level. And I know it's not the same, but... Bloody hell. <laughs> anyway, coming up. The previously untold story of a man you haven't heard of. And a language that you might have. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Phil Sansom. I'm Bruce Miller. You're listening to Apex. Len Fedinito. And today we're talking about people who create their own languages from scratch. Conlangers, that's what they're called. Uh, we mentioned the Language Creation Society, which takes commissions from studios that want their own language, like Dothraki or Klingon from Star Trek or whatever. And you might have heard of how these languages got made specifically for the film or TV series. But you probably haven't noticed that they also made this one. That's parcel tongue. Whoa. I know I watched the films growing up. We all watched them growing up, right? Yeah, definitely. I remember Harry and Voldemort, or whoever, speaking parcel tongue. Mm -hmm. I totally thought they were just sort of making up hissing sounds. <laughs> yeah, me too. Because that's what it sounds like. They're just going like... So you're telling me this is a natural language? Yeah, well, turns out, just like with Dothraki... Warner Brothers Studios commissioned someone to create the parcel tongue language for the film. Um, I didn't really notice the fact that they did that. I don't think many people noticed at all. But this guy at least did. Do you mind if we start off by you saying your name and what it is you do? Certainly. Uh, my name is Robert Murphy. I teach maths uh, here in the States. I um, I'm an amateur conlanger, which Which started with I, a lot of exposure to different languages early on in his life. Yeah, yeah. I moved all over the world growing up. The first language I learned as a child was Korean. I actually uh, went to a British uh, primary school in Germany when I was a young man. So um, my father was American military. And in back in the 80s, southern Germany was American and northern Germany was British. Right. So when we when we got stationed at a British uh, military base, I went to British primary school and I taught like this for 
when I was eight, nine and ten. And that's how I sounded. And today, Robert's a conlanger and a maths teacher. Uh, I've been teaching maths for five years and I've been inventing languages for about four years now. And my poor maths students are um, subjected to me all the time trying to make maths easier by comparing it to some feature of grammar, which makes it a million times worse for them, um, <laughs> but, but to me makes it absolutely lucid and clear. Um, so that those, those, those analogies where I try to say in calculus you're taking the limit, which is basically just the subjunctive of math, um, does not help them. Does not help Romelli, he's totally right. Um, yeah, he first really got into creating his own languages while doing a divinity masters, where he tried to improve his Hebrew by creating a sort of mashup with the Philippine language Tagalog. If you can have something that's already nuts and blend it with something that's nuts in another way, you could end up with something uh, ludicrous beyond all reason. Which is what they call a kitchen sink language, like a project that you do just for fun, uh, mashing two languages together. So going back to earlier, that's an artistic language. Most conlangers prefer to stick to one or the other, either making auxiliary languages just for communicating or artistic languages just for fun. But not Robert, though. His biggest ongoing project came about from learning Esperanto and then seeing the effects that it had. And so I then I said, well, why doesn't someone try this for Asia? And so... Um, it, it, was, it actually ended up being a lot harder, and I got a collaborator uh, from uh, southern China and a collaborator from uh, Japan, and the three of us uh, worked together on creating a language for all of Far East Asia, so China, Korea, Japan, and Vietnam. Uh, it's called uh, Danayo, D-A-N apostrophe A apostrophe Y-O. It's a big, big project. We've made over 4,500 words and uh, really had an extensive working vocabulary of all manner of technical and ordinary speech. So far, as I've been field testing that one, it has been that somebody from one of those four countries can immediately, without any training, understand 60 to 70% of what is said in this language. And then with just a week's worth of study, they can get up to 90% comprehension. Which is really quick to pick up a language. And that's because all the languages in the four target countries, they were really influenced by ancient Chinese. At the moment, Robert's trying to make a trip to Far East Asia, trying to get supplements for Danayo introduced in schools. Yeah, that is, that is the one that I am most excited about. It is gaining the most ground. That's a big project he's working on. A really interesting one too. But it's not why I got in touch with him. You see, the person that Warner Brothers asked to create Parseltongue was Francis Nolan. He's professor of phonetics here in Cambridge. We asked to speak with him for the show. I emailed him, but he politely declined and he said he didn't want the attention. So if you're listening, by the way, and you think you might get in touch with him, obviously we can't stop you, but please do respect his wishes about that. Besides, he didn't actually create a full language for Harry Potter like we described earlier with the step one and two and three and four. He actually only created the few key phrases that they needed for the film. So I found that out. I was doing my research on the story and I was totally surprised that I found actually a full grammar and structure and everything online 
and that in turn led me to Robert. I, w I was very interested, you know, of course, like all young people reading Harry Potter books. I'm old enough that I was, while they were being released, I was getting into it. And so um, after the first uh, couple of movies, I started noticing the, the presence of this uh, language. And I um, dug around and tried very hard to find out who was creating these sounds and this this bits and pieces of language and I found out that it was Francis Nolan and so I wrote Dr. Nolan and asked him what was his uh, process and could he send me his lexicon which is a fancy way of saying dictionary And he sent me uh, the sort of the, the things that he was studying in Finnish and Estonian and some of the ideas that he had, but he had not really come up with a grammar or a full set of language at all. He had just sort of used his linguistic know-how to not have anything be inconsistent, but it was not uh, flushed out to any great extent other than a half dozen phrases. And Robert decided, just for fun, that he should be the one to flesh it out. Um, he sent me um, all of his notes for what he, the phrases that were said in the movie, a few that were not said in any of the movies. And like we know by now, the first thing he had to think of was the sounds. Francis had already done some of that already, picking the ones he thought would sound best. Wanting to have the more guttural um, sounds that were all whispered, that there was no sort of buzzing kinds of what are technically called voiced consonants, where, you're, where your mouth is... The difference between the letter B and the letter P is that you can whisper the letter uh, P, but you, you have to buzz the letter B. And, um, and so he avoided those kinds of sounds and he added the guttural sounds, the sound that comes like hacking a loogie. Francis was particularly interested in something called gemination. Gemination. The idea that certain sounds have a length to them that matters. So in English, you can distinguish rarely um, between his zeal, a young man's enthusiasm, and his eel, a young man's sea snake, that's a distinction we don't make a lot in English. But in Finnish and Estonian, it is everywhere. Vowels and consonants have length. And Dr. Nolan's research is he is pushing for the idea that there are three levels of distinction within Finnish and Estonian. So that they would distinguish between one Z, two Zs, and three Zs in a row uh, in sound, which is... Jesus. Yeah, I know. It's not. I, I certainly couldn't hear that if I tried. So I did not go to the three level distinction uh, when continuing his work in partial tongue. Uh, I just went for the two. Yeah, so this is about the point where Robert decided to flesh out the structure of partial tongue with sounds and grammar and everything, which is to turn a few scattered and isolated phrases into a full blown language that you can say anything you want in. And he started with step one. Step one. Picking the sounds that go into it. 
if you imagine an art, uh, a painter getting their palette together of the colors that they're going to use, that's what the sort of sound selection process is like for a language creator. But then while Francis Nolan, the original creator of Parseltongue, just sort of picked the sounds that sounded good in like a whispering voice, Robert decided to take it that extra step further. I tried uh, learning a bit about uh, the anatomy of snakes. And his thinking was, what sort of sounds would a snake actually be able to make if it tried? Based on the unique anatomy features that snakes have got. Things like the vomeronasal. Vomeronasal? The Jacobson's organ uh, at the roof of their mouth, which is a fancy um, nose where they stick their t forked tongue out of their mouth and pull air in and place it on this sensing organ on the roof of their mouth that lets them smell. Things like snakes being able to move the entire back of the throat to one side. Yes, that they, they can put their entire glottis to one side so that they can eat an animal that is uh, their size or greater, uh, which, which makes me feel a lot better about my culinary habits. And based on those, he added some more sounds to Parseltongue, like based on being able to move the glottis. What I, what I had thought of before only was something pertinent in beatboxing, uh, when people attempt to make beats with their mouth. Uh, that there are um, ejective forms of consonants. So where you are saying P and P and T and these, uh, these strong uh, consonants that are sound like somebody who's, you know, like they sound like a beatboxer. I think his beatboxing is pretty good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I, I always heard that the way to learn to do that was to say boots and cats and then um, hold your breath and try saying it as hard as you can. So you've got boots and cats and boots and cats. And then based on the vomeronasal, the organ in the roof of snakes' mouths. Something that turns out that humans can do, but that snakes would not be able to do, is that we have next to our uh, vocal folds are what are called the false vocal folds. Remember vocal folds from last episode? So there's these extra flaps of skin just sort of hanging out and doing nothing in your throat. And what the uh, Mongolians and the Tibetans have learned to do is to get them vibrating. And once they're started, if you can control it, they will vibrate at half the frequency of the note you're singing. So you can then um, create a bagpipe or didgeridoo kind of effect where you can sing two notes at once, one of which is an octave below the other note that you're doing. So <clears throat> this will probably distort, but maybe. <laughs> That's spectacular. <laughs> what is he doing? That is what's called Mongolian throat singing. I had to look it up. You, that, can, you can find it on YouTube. There's some good, really good examples. I'm going to spend an afternoon doing that. I would recommend. Quite spectacular. Well, yeah. So th that one is probably not possible for snakes since they don't have false vocal folds. But there is also a high style where you isolate the upper harmonics of your voice, which they probably would be able to do with the Jacobson's organ, which is like this. <laughs> And 
And um, and then also, since they have these great big, huge, long tongues, of course they would um, have the sort of South African sounding kind of uh, clicks. Another sound he could add to parcel tongue based on what snakes can actually do with their mouths and throats. And of course this was a very hard question to ask because no one cares how a snake would talk. Um, so that's really not very well researched. So I had to do a lot of anatomy and asking the biology professors at work, or teachers at my, at my work, what they thought would be possible. And it ends up getting some fairly exotic sounds that are not uh, common uh, to many of the world's languages. Step two. On to grammar. I did try to have those kinds of um, grammatical cases to continue Dr. Nolan's sort of precedent that he set. But less complicated, yes. I, I don't know Finnish, uh, and so I, I've, I've seen it in broad strokes outlined, and that was as far as I wanted to take it. Step three. Which is culture. If you can call being a snake a culture. But the fact that you've got them speaking presents its own challenges and restrictions. In, in these movies, they're talking... Uh, you know, Harry Potter is is speaking to these snakes that don't actually have consciousness. They're not conscious entities. Just by the fact that he talks to a snake doesn't mean that it suddenly has self-awareness and sentience. Um, so how how does that work? Well, hang on. And, that's a big step, isn't it? To, to say that snakes are, are not conscious, right? Right. I mean... Yeah, I, 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 I don't, I think that... Yeah, it's based on animal psychology, specifically experiments where they show the animal a mirror. And if it touches itself rather than the mirror, that is what's meant to show it has self-awareness. And so that was a very, that was a very, I was, I was a real logical conundrum for how to have non-sentient things be speaking. So what I, what I imagined, my way of sort of how to deal with the, the non-sentience of the speaker was to say that they would conflate here and now and me, that those would all just sort of, that time and space and person would all run together. So what that is, is the same word that means this, and it means me, and also here, and it means now. This is me, is here, is now. Which is the idea being that snakes don't make the distinction between themselves as a thing and the moment they're in so that's reflected in the language that is like attention to detail isn't it it's pretty amazing uh-huh i wouldn't have thought of that no that has massive uh consequences that you are um so so in english you know that there is i am uh you are he she it is that the word am so that would be like having to say in english here am good instead of here is good. We, we say here is good because we don't think of here and myself as the same thing, that this region that I'm in is distinct from me versus a non-sentient entity would just be referencing this time-space moment where they also happen to be. And then another feature of culture, because of course this is Harry Potter we're talking about, this is a culture where magic is involved. The, the magic of, of Harry Potter was something that I thought a lot about, too, is that there's, there's magical snakes in, in the universe. So how would they... They're not, they're not going to switch to Latin like Harry Potter does and just start 
expecto patronum kind of things. So what are they going to do? And the the idea that there are certain that, that, that to pick up on something that we already do in English, which is that we have sentences that perform the action being described. Um, what in fancy words could be called they are illocutionary. Um, so so for example, I promise to do that. Well, there's not something separate else that you do to promise. The act of saying, I promise such and such, is the promise. And so um, the idea that there would be a special illocutionary tense in this language, since the whole thing is magical, that this is magic that allows the snakes to speak anyway, why not have past tense, present tense, subjunctive, uh, and illocutionary as a a mode of, of speech to make it happen what you're saying. So instead of saying um, there is fire as a statement, which uh, would be then they switch just one little thing and say and, and change one little bit that says from there is fire to basically let there be fire. The magic tense. The magic tense, exactly. So you just speak in a tense and just magic happens. Yeah, like you speak in a tense, so you're talking about the past. Uh -huh. You speak in a tense and it's magic. So we could change past tense to like magic tense. I've known. But I mean, I'm just I mean, I hate to say it, but magic isn't real. No, come on now. No. Don't no, give me that. Not bad, right? Yeah. I uh, think I'd accidentally slip into it, though. You know how when you're learning like a language and you're rubbish with tenses, yeah, yeah. you accidentally just set things on fire. <laughs> oh no, I meant it was on fire. God damn. <laughs> and there you have it. Parcel Tongue now exists in a complete version created by Robert. You can find it online on linguifex.com, which is an online wiki for languages. It's a fully speakable language and it's got the magic tense and everything. And so far there's about 1500 words. If you want to go out there and learn parcel tongue, well, now you can. And when you do, you can say things like which uh, means uh, to be or not to be, that is the question. Or maybe which uh, means uh, uh, by my might, uh, let there be darkness. Whoa, that's that's dark. Yeah, well, just a quick side note. Those are a couple of the things that Robert's been asked to translate to create parcel tongue tattoos. No, he has not. He, he actually has. Wow. That's that's what he does with it now. Hey, are these Harry Potter fans? No, actually, they're not Harry Potter fans. They're usually metalheads. <laughs> okay. And that's because the metalheads want something that sounds super sinister mm -hmm. as a tattoo. So they want this language that's like... That is far less intimidating when you know what it actually is. Yeah, when you know so it's a you, Harry Potter They've thing. got a language from a children's book on their arm. <laughs> Six sleeve, bro. Hey, don't make them feel bad. <laughs> okay, fair enough, yeah. Uh, uh, pro probably about two dozen people who are looking for um, sinister, uh, usually heavy metal-related tattoos have asked how to say various things in parcel tongue. So you can go to him and ask him, and he'll create a tattoo for you of whatever you want to say. Although it won't be written in English letters. Because like parcel tongue is not a written language. So I write it in a variant of the Latin script. 
and these these metalheads that was not cool enough um so uh they they were not uh thrilled uh, uh with that so i also figured out a way to write it in the indian alphabet but he'll send you a full write-up what it means and how to pronounce it so that they could have something that looks like indian sounds like a snake about to eat you and is very cool and brilliant from their point of view and so that's parcel tongue now we've got to link it back to what makes us human right oh jesus um let's let robert do it for us creativity uh i think that um what we can do as as human beings is to combine things that already exist into make new things that have never existed before. That it's not simply that we rearrange material objects and memes and genes um, like other natural processes do. The, the beauty of human beings is our ability to create things that seemingly did not exist at all. That it's not quite the biblical idea of creation ex nihilo, but it is the, the closest that we can come in reality to pulling things out of the ether, from the void, from nothing, I think, into existence is, is the magic and beauty of human beings. Which is why I love conlanging. I am I am creating a language out of out of thin air a lot of times. It's super technical. It's not for everybody, but it is it is so rewarding when you get it to just be not only did I create like that word that we just put together a minute ago, but that I can create a system from which an, literally an infinite number of things could come out. And now when they ask me why, uh, why I create languages, and I, I just say, um, because I would not know what else to do. It's, it's, just, it's just in me. If the first thing you, you think you want to do when you wake up is to write, then you're a writer. Well, the first thing I want to do when I wake up is work on my languages. Apex has been a podcast for CAMFM on 97.2, produced and presented by me, Phil Sansom, with extra presenting from... Me, Bruce Miller. Thanks, Bruce. No worries. It was a pleasure. It's been a good episode, right? It has. I've learned lots for yeah. the second time around. Aw. <laughs> soon it'll come... Soon it'll be your turn for yeah, you to teach me things. Yeah, excited for that. Give, give it a couple episodes. Cool. Tune in in two weeks' time. Uh, we'll be back. And special thanks today to Christophe Grancier-Kovitz, if I've pronounced that right. Very talented man. Very talented. And also the very talented Robert Murphy from the USA. Yes, indeed. Okay. Back in two weeks. <laughs>